1: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to New Books in South Asian Studies. I am Madhuri. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to New Books in South Asian Studies. I am Madhuri, the host of your channel. And today we are talking to Professor Debaruti Sen about her new book from SUNY Press, Everyday Sustainability, Gender justice and fair trade tea in Darjeeling. Thank you so much, Professor Sen, for joining us. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much, Madhuri. It's a great
0: pleasure to uh, get this opportunity to share, uh, you know, uh, details about my book in sort of a new medium. I'm really happy that new books and specifically you, on behalf of them, reached out. Uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation.
1: Great, thanks. So why don't we get started by you telling us a little bit about what brought you to anthropology and more specifically, this particular research field site in Darjeeling. You write in the book that, you know, you have a personal connection with the region. Am I right? Yes, correct.
0: Well, I, I guess there are two parts to the question then, one about uh, anthropology and the other about how I uh, went to Darjeeling to do this study. So uh, I, as, um, um, I was actually a sociologist when I studied in India in the Delhi School of Economics in the sociology program there. And um, I came to the United States to actually start in a sociology program. However, I did not know... Uh, that ethnography and field-based studies were not always the centerpiece of all sociology departments. Whereas uh, I was trained uh, in D school, which had a very sort of British social anthropological uh, focus. Uh, but the downside of that training was that I wasn't really uh, exposed to real field work, Even even to the M field stage, we were primarily encouraged to, uh, probably because of the lack of funds, or at least then, not now so much, um, to focus on secondary database research or archival, you know, and fieldwork was really kind of the purview of PhD scholars. So when I came here, um, I soon realized in a short time that anthropology was something that uh, would offer me, especially cultural anthropology, which um i had um the field work component so i transferred to the to an anthropology program at rutgers where i went to school and i also got a chance to work closely with feminist scholars there at the women's studies program and um You know, I I was always interested in questions around the use and access of natural resources uh, by minority communities in India, Uh, whether it was Adivasi's, uh, you know, in my thesis, I looked at the question of biodiversity conservation, uh, especially around the patents at that time in the early 2000s. So um, I... Started uh, looking for questions, things which hadn't done hadn't been done before in anthropology. And although I have sh- I have used uh, pre- feminist anthropological methods and sort of a framing in my research, you'll notice that my questions around uh, labor and resource rights also draw from sort of sociology, cultural geography, and many other uh, related fields. So the sociology training wasn't quite in vain. But uh, I I really uh, wanted to do some first-hand ethnography. And um, I really didn't know about the existence of this whole fair trade thing, especially of the small farmer community, which nobody's actually written about before me, uh, especially from Darjeeling. It's much more common in the doers uh, and in South India, but not so much in the Darjeeling tea industry. So it was all accidental when I first got there. Um, but uh, anyway, the rest is history now so uh, i wanted to also pick a place that would sustain my interest although i did end up having to learn a new language which is nepali for my field work uh, i i have a strong family connections or i had strong family connections and i decided to uh, study uh, darjeeling in a sustained way um, and uh, and and the problem of fair trade and labor organizing and, and the book has so many Different sort of apertures to uh, the story of Darjeeling, you know, from different vantage points, etc., that uh, it, it sustained my interest for the last 10 years in writing this book, beginning with my dissertation, and I hope to continue working in the area. But that's sort of in not so much of a nutshell <laughs> my. Uh, Response to your two questions.
1: Great. And, you know, since you um, began already to talk about the research, before we go into the topic itself, I want to ask you to tell our listeners a little bit more about your methodological approach, right, which you call a feminist longitudinal ethnography. And you point out that, and I quote, the researcher's relationship with her respondents and her presence itself is a palimpsest of power and desire steeped in long histories of exploitations, hierarchies, And differences. And reading that, I thought, you know, this insight in the last 20, 25 years has become fairly um, mainstream, right, in our discipline. But later on in this particular chapter, you go on to say that, you know, in other disciplines, in other social sciences, this whole idea that objectivity and evidence collection and you know the notion of data itself is a very political one right and less grappled with perhaps outside our disciplinary confines so i want to ask if you know devoting space to outlining your methodological challenges in the detail that you have how much of that was about talking to an interdisciplinary audience, and you know how you went about challenging um, some of the preconceived notions in these uh, disciplines outside anthropology. Mm-hmm
0: correct um i actually uh, teach uh, in a very interdisciplinary phd program which is in conflict studies development and peace building and uh, the methodology even the qualitative methodology that start there um, in the curriculum and across the board in fields such as those, uh, remain very overtly positivistic. And and you're right that you know what we as feminist scholars and especially as anthropologists treat as given. You know this whole self reflexive uh, turn, you know understanding that we have sort of you know response effects on our informants based on who we are materially, socially, and politically, but uh, one thing uh, that stood out for me also in social science textbooks are words such as exploratory uh, assigned to anthropological work, right? Feminist work, or 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 things which are even more insidious, although not probably positioned that way, which are uh, you know calling this kind of research backyard studies or backyard research which i came across in a very popular um uh, social science textbook which is taught in a lot of research programs and that has a particular history uh you know i mean a person i guess who's crunching numbers sitting in his office somewhere in i don't know atlanta it's also in, in a backyard, sort of. But also, you know, th- that, uh, that designation of backyard uh, kind of discounts the, the, the complexity of engaging even in one's own country. Right, and most of u s anthropology, even now it's an extremely white discipline where people study abroad uh and and there are very few people who um who actually uh um understand what it is maybe the sensitivity to such terminology is a positional thing, but it nevertheless remains embedded in this long matrix of identifying what's valid knowledge, right? Uh, So people who were from the tropics were considered as subjects of research. And if we continue to sort of use terminology like backward or back. Uh, back, I'm sorry, not backwards. Backyard, but backyard. research, right? It's it, it, it's it's a it's a rather uh, slip almost. Uh, so I wanted to write in detail about that, and also I I also make another point about how I approached uh, this ethnography as an interlocutor and not so much as an activist ethnographer, you know, sort of reporting from the ground. Uh, Although I must say that my political leanings are very apparent in my use of transnational feminism and post-colonial feminism uh, in in building the theoretical edifice of this work. Uh, But I think overtly my approach has been of a researcher uh, who treats the informants as an interlocutors, across these divides of power and desire. And I give various instances in the book in terms of how I had to prove myself in certain ways as worthy of this long study and gaining trust in a a surveilled environment of a plantation and also outside in different ways. So I think it's important for us to make these, uh, you know, to pause and talk about these very complex ways of conducting research. Uh, It's not just about being in one's backyard. (laughs) For those of us who return to our country, you know, we have an interesting position of both privilege and marginality at different points. So I just wanted to uh, say that at least, you know, a student who picks up this book who is not white um, will understand what it is like uh, to, to deal with methodology which uh, should not. I mean, you could just say going back to one's own country to research instead of saying backyard research or something like
1: that. Just going, uh, you know, ahead with that. You know, you have concerns with terms like exploratory and backyard research, but at the same time, you're also not entirely comfortable taking on the mantle of a public anthropologist right or an activist anthropologist no i i frankly
0: think that people are i'm sorry I maybe i cut you off but i i really feel like activists do a lot different kind of work uh, they are grounded in different ways you know and i and not to say that they are not objective and that anthropologists shouldn't do that but i did not approach at least this particular work Uh, as an activist, because I'm also critical of, you know, certain forms of activism around fair trade uh, in my book, You know, you you probably realize that. So especially when I talk about the transnational activists, right? So if I got embedded in activism, and I just didn't want to make that leap uh, because I feel like activism also requires a certain kind, a different kind of sustained engagement and a commitment, uh, which I did not make in terms of being there all the time. Okay, so I I made that distinction thus.
1: And now our listeners must be very eager to learn the content of Debaruti's research. So before I, you know, we get into the sort of nitty-gritties of The book itself, I was very, um, you know, this probably points to my own ignorance than anything else. But I wasn't entirely sure about the distinction between fair trade and organic before I read your book. So that was uh, actually really revealing to me. But, you know, before we sort of go into further details. Will you give our listeners a sort of broad stroked picture of the exact research question that you set out to investigate when you went to Darjeeling? Yeah, uh,
0: you know, I I'll, I'll probably post this in different ways in my book, but uh, I primarily wanted to understand how people who produce tea in Darjeeling, understand this global sustainability initiative. And in this case, these sort of market-based sustainability initiatives. And I will draw attention to a particular uh, phrase that I used from one of my informants, you know, which is I'm forgetting which chapter it is in now, but this whole question of why now? Why are people concerned about us now? And what does fair trade mean? And as you've seen in many chapters of the book, they play linguistically with this idea of fair trade and search in, uh, of in one of the chapters and then comparing husbands to organic husbands in the household chapter. So uh you know we and and i'll tell you why i wanted to uh take this very simple approach but also very complex because too often in discussions of sustainability the social sustainability aspect is always um forgotten it's all about uh financial efficiency and ecological um viability. And you see that fair trade as a system is completely based on the the auditing of social improvement in communities right, and empowerment. So for those uh, listeners who are thinking about fair trade for the first time, unlike organic certification, which is about the certification of the chemical properties of something being organically produced, uh, kind of like the USDA Um, organic certification. So organic certification you can take from various institutions in the world, mostly based in the global north. Fair trade is also like that. And fair trade also has a long history of uh, translateral organizations uh, supporting it. Uh, The one which I um, encountered most during my field work was fair trade labeling organizations international based in Bonn, Germany. And they have an international network pretty sophisticated in in ensuring that if you pay a dollar extra for your cup of fair trade tea, it goes back that extra dollar in total goes back to the community for uh, economic and social advancement. And and within which there are provisions for en- enabling women to become better entrepreneurs, you know, in various kinds of... Uh, ventures so um so it's a true two-pronged approach but in darjeeling they kind of unfold simultaneously um and so for me it was very important to understand uh, what are people who are producing tea in very different socio-political contexts and economic contexts even within this tiny area of the world called darjeeling uh, are understanding these sustainability sustainability drives. And so, you know, I kind of uh, went back and titled my book, thus leasing Everyday Sustainability. I mean, for them, everyday questions of survival, of activism, of care, of provisioning, uh, of being somebody uh, is tied to how they see these ventures either advancing or deterring them from that path. So that, in a nutshell, is sort of the overall approach of this book. And of course, the question also enables, enables a comparative study of plantation workers who are essentially wage laborers living in the old plantations of Darjeeling and the small tea growers whose numbers officially are unable, uh, you will be unable to verify them. But I worked in a... A newly formed a tea cooperative um, which is now almost well 20 years old and it's the most organized one but there are various other people growing tea in sort of the trenches between the plantations so unfortunately this pride growing very good quality tea um, cannot call their tea darjeeling unless and until they are routed through the manufacturing process of a plantation to make their tea uh, ready for world um, market transaction so i wanted to really focus on uh, not just uh, how they produce tea differently but how they also view fair trade and organics differently based on their contextual situation
1: Right. And, you know, I found the comparative aspect of your study so fascinating because, you know, at face value, if you encounter the word plantation, you definitely don't associate it with fair trade, right? I mean, plantation just automatically evokes relationships of exploitation and wage labor. And, you know, in, in that sense, I thought comparing these smallholder tea farmers with plantation workers was so interesting because the first question that you know came to my mind was how was the fair trade justice regime even able to reconcile right plantations and what that embodies in you know the popular mindset with our understandings of fair trade, which in you know some ways is diametrically opposite, so I wanted to ask you a little bit more for our listeners, how that discursive work was actively negotiated and then ultimately reconciled, right? Because for people sitting in bond. How is that actually playing out? You
0: know, uh, that's a very important question and also a very debated one within this sort of fair trade bureaucracy because there's really a difference between activists and the ones who actually do the drudge work of fair trade, right? So The actual certification yeah, which process. are they are bureaucrats, right? So um, as opposed to like the student activists, etc. Well, you know, I've come to learn, uh, actually, my place in the United States, in the South, I live in the South now, um, for the last seven years. It's uh, interesting to think through um, how the plantation becomes a point of nostalgia and is not so maligned, unlike us, who grew up in the colonies. And for us, plantation is like really a vestige of colonial, you know, uh, splendor in a certain way and systems of governance. So uh, within the fair trade community, as I said, there is sort of a, a huge, uh, you know, backlash against certifying plantations. But see, plant, unfortunately, plantation uh, tea is a plantation crop, especially in Asia, in, in, in South Asia. In China, there are sort of, you know, farmers. But the thing is, there's another layer to this response. now. For uh, an average person visiting Darjeeling, this whole terminology of tea gardens also is part of the discursive. Tropes. So they don't understand sometimes whether they are in plantations or outside, for one, on the one hand, because everything looks so beautiful. Except for the fact that you know, when you are in cooperative areas, you know the, the non-monocultural tea landscape. And I use images in my book to draw attention to that. They think it's like some kind of wild uh, place. So the actual Place of engagement seems to them like a deceptive uh, place, but plantations are so. As I say, the aesthetic of plantations is very binding, and uh, even and even now, even students who I worked with, even nonprofit workers who were there, were so hell bent at least doing something for the plantations as opposed to not engaging them totally is is also what drives the certification of plantations uh, as fair trade. It is ironical. I mean, seriously, I am still uh, quite disturbed by fair trade plantations, this whole idea. And also, very interestingly, as I write in my book, sometimes because the plantations are so dominating, because the small farmers don't have uh, processing units, which makes tea, you know, palatable for the consumer, they use the small farmers as publicity stunts. So for instance, this particular plantation who bought tea from SKS, the cooperative, would uh, say that we are the leaders of small farmers. You know, we we are making way for small farmer grown tea in Darjeeling. So on both ends, there are a lot of compromises and sort of interesting maneuvers to make something, as you pointed out, impossible, possible, which is to say, Plantations can be certified fair trade um and it just is completely uh, counterintuitive to me, but you know the I guess it just goes on, but luckily, there is mobilization among small farmers in North Bengal with the botley factories at the doers and I know that the Indian tea board is actually in, investing now um in training of small farmers, uh, and there's funding for them. And I ta- and I uh, draw from some of those uh, sessions in my book in brief ways, but it's, it wasn't as popular when I was doing my work. But over the years, I've followed up with that research. But uh, if you talk about the tea board and the local tea board, Darjeeling Tea Association in Darjeeling, they're very hostile to even talking about small farmers, even now. Uh, when there's so much going on.
1: Yeah, I mean, at one point you say that, you know, there's even a reticence to acknowledging the existence of small farmers at all, right? Let's go back to the women tea farmers who form your main interlocutors in the book, right? And we... Come to learn that the farmers who are part of the cooperative, perhaps unsurprisingly, are more politically active and experience greater positive impacts on their intra-household relations and the entrepreneurial activities they undertake as compared to their counterparts in the plantations, right, who are wage laborers. And you relate this very interestingly to the gendered ideologies of work, right, that differ across these two contrasting institutional spaces. Will you tell us a little bit uh, more about what the gendered ideologies of work were in a cooperative as opposed to the plantation? Yeah, sure. So uh, two things.
0: The gendered ideologies also work along the structure, right? The plantation, which is very surveilled. It's an old institution where people are very afraid of losing their jobs, which is a way of holding on to a regular wage, no matter how small uh and the, there was a lot of precarity in the non plantation areas but what what strikes me um when I first went to work there, what struck me when I first went to work there was that you know there's nothing universal as a Nepali women. Thing in Darjeeling, it really varies based on this Basti and Kaman. Kaman is what they call the plantations and the Basti areas. And like most other upwardly mobile rural households in India, Darjeeling is no exception. The first thing that happens, and and it's actually more pronounced in Darjeeling, the gender ideologies around work, especially for women, because you know because women are such a backbone of the local economy. There's sort of an Envy, uh, envious relationship with them. And so I also write about this whole idea of a Darjeeling girl and how plantation women are subject to this very sexualized stereotypes about, you know, being loose women and who drink a lot and etc cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So in the rural areas, people who don't work in plantations, they are very Uh, particular about dissociating themselves from any kind of uh, plantation-related cultural or social Um, what should I say practice so for instance um, in the rural areas in the busty areas outside plantations women uh, households prided themselves on not having to let their women go to work for a large chunk of the day and especially among upwardly mobile households Um, and 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 that practice was sort of emulated and people even, not so well-off people would say, oh, you know what? Our women can say any day is Sunday for them. But interestingly, as I write in uh, one of the later chapters, um, their work schedule begins with the plantation siren, which is all around them. So seven o'clock, right? So I think it's very important to, Take account of these very small, in a very truly anthropological way, of these small distinctions, even within sort of socioeconomically similar, and yet differently placed populations in Darjeeling, who are so invested in aspirational uh, dynamics, especially the one upwardly mobile families saying, "Oh, our women never never go to work," and I and I show that you know women struggle in households everywhere in Darjeeling, but in the plantations, there's a different kind of silence um, around issues of equity, um, a taboo almost because of women's overbearing economic responsibilities and male unemployment, which is so high in Darjeeling. In, in the cooperative area, there's a slight difference. And there's a slight advantage where women can actually talk back to some of the male members um, in their community, especially the ones who are trying to dominate the cooperative in certain ways, right? So these very sort of seemingly homogenous group of Nepali tea producers are actually deeply divided across these gender ideologies of being housewives as opposed to these sort of wanton plantation workers. Um, And plantation workers actually cross um, the board uh, in countries, you know, and if you look at the South here, the if you look at novels and American sort of history, you see the same kind of tropes come about because of, you know, s- similar patriarchal dynamics. So um, that's something I zeroed in on because that was the only way I could explain sort of the divergence in engagement with fair trade from really from the household to the community level.
1: So the Ghumauri then, right, the credit and mentoring groups that you talk about um, in the book, how do these groups configure in the landscape that you just described? Did plantation workers have them as well, or was it just something that the cooperatives, the small tea farmer women who had this particular institution? Okay, so the Gumari groups are particularly uh,
0: preponderant in the plantation areas, and they're very concealed, as you saw from the ethnographic details. It took me a long while, and I dis- uh, distinctly asked for permission from the workers, because, you know, they're very concerned sometimes in certain uh, areas, some groups that, oh, if the plantation owner finds out, we are not going to Uh, get our bonus, because bonus is always a a bonus during the time of pujas, right, or Diwali or Dashai for them. So just backing up a little bit, so Kumari, for those of you who are hearing it for the first time, is basically a revolving credit group, which started out in rural areas of Nepal as uh, food sharing groups among uh, women who worked in forests and or in small farming communities. Obviously, when people migrated to Darjeeling uh, 200 years ago, um, they brought these practices with them. And also, this became very popular among women because it it didn't have to approach banks, didn't have to go to any sort of credit. I mean, remember that South Asia is kind of known for the place where market credit has become this huge success, etc. right? And... Um, Um, I mean, I've written about those things in my other publications, but just goes to say that there are much more resilient economic arrangements on the ground. So um, the Kumari is one of them where women yeah they still share food medicine, but it's it's like you know they'll their budget for a group must be not even five or six thousand rupees and for somebody sending a small child to school in India, you know that that's actually nothing, but they revolve it they it's a, it's like a socio economic underground arrangement in the cooperative area of course you know women didn't have to rely on those because they had access to credit as you see as you saw that they had access to these bank loans especially after the formation of the cooperative the women's wing of the cooperative were mostly taking out these loans and now of course they've become even more savvy and their whole peeve with fair trade was that they spoke the language of subsidy they wanted the money to basically make sure that they don't have to pay loans uh, take out loans and pay them back because they cause so much uproar in the community and also you saw that despite this ideology of the housewife they are very savvy business people because avenues for employment in Darjeeling are very few uh, and so women have, you know, in this community in particular because of the lack of a secure income, the cooperative people have always been trading in, in, in different ways. So anyway, going back to the question of Gumari, then, yeah uh, actually the plant, non-plantation wo- women, the smallholders, they know about it and you know some of their family members who work in plantations, uh, not in this particular, there are very few people in this cooperative who actually have people working in plantations you know getting a plantation job is a permanent one is not an easy thing in Darjeeling at all because it, it's it's exchanged through generations within the same family so they know it but it is primarily practiced among uh, the plantation workers as a way to sort of therapeutically cope with the surveillance, look out for each other in terms of um, uh, you know troubled times and and also as as i say in one part of the book one very uh, articulate woman said that you know these are like our small unions because of the hegemonic nature of unions and their constant uh, association and dissociation with local political parties they actually uh, took this and they used to joke that this is like our small union so why do you waste time you know going to these big union leaders and talking to them and you know after a while i realized that you know as, even as a joke that was very powerful And of course, the fair trade establishment is completely uh, unaware and for a reason because they don't want them to be aware of everything in their lives because they are very aware of the virtualities through which these women, you know, add value to tea, not just by producing things, but lending their faces, their, their stories, their videos. Uh, and they're very wary of this sort of virtual uh space and how their stories circulate. Because as they often told me, as I write in my book, oh, like, we are very famous all over the world, but nobody cares about us in Darjeeling, right? So, you know i told you i will give you a, a few details you know to uh make sure people understand where these where this sort of resistance comes from and so the question is they are resisting in different ways but one in a bit more engaged to fair trade and the other one is sort of continuing their work in these trenches sort of in these interstitial spaces as i say that in, in my chapters
1: so some of our listeners you know might perhaps be conscious consumers and, you know, committed to purchasing fair trade products, and might be surprised uh, to find in your book, that fair trade interventions often inadvertently end up strengthening, right, patriarchal power relations in Darjeeling. And I found that particular chapter, very interesting. Will you talk a little bit more about this, given how, you know, fair trade markets itself as a justice regime and very much about empowering the marginalized? So how is it that, you know, in contradiction to its stated objectives, fair trade ends up somehow doing the very thing that it's supposed to undo? Yes, uh, sadly
0: that is correct. A very appropriate summary of, uh, you know, uh, it's very interesting. Uh, when people ask me, uh, people ask me all the time. So, which fair trade product should I buy, or, or, or <laughs> what's, uh, the what's, what's the recommendation which we buy? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can imagine. I mean, I am also a sucker for these guys, and partly you know, the reason why I got attracted doing this research, but I am one of those sort of liberal, you know, left river consumers. And, and, you know, the domestic market for organics in India is growing. I'm sure you know this as much as I do. The aisles of organic stuff, even in local grocery stores, like chain stores are... Anyway, so going back to the original question of, you know, what to do. As I say, it's not a perfect system, but you know there's some movement these people are learning about darjeeling but what i say is go for any brand you like not a problem because this is because you know what fair trade does in darjeeling is quite insignificant in a way in which the as you see the wage increases and all come through political mobilization right because this Fair trade is a very privatized affair in Darjeeling. It doesn't work with the tea board. In conjunction with the tea board, it's like a sideshow, etc. Not for the cooperative folks. For them, this little bit of added attention has gone a long way in legitimizing their claims to, you know, land resources and their tea. You know, people know about this cooperative in Darjeeling. So it, it even in spite of my attempts to conceal its identity, I mean, those who know uh, know this. Um, So I think my response to what are our conscious consumers going to do, my response is drink whatever brand you want, but study about the region. You know, study about the region, try to read a few ethnographies. Okay, this is totally uh, all full disclosure, a plug to read more books about Darjeeling, including mine. But um, overall, to be a little bit more mindful and you know, ultimately they have to understand that sitting here and thinking about, you know, saving the world is not going to get them very far even people who are in the ground are mistaking plantations with small farms and stuff like that so i say go drink your tea and hopefully you'll be a little bit more awake looking about looking and thinking through the places from where these teas come you know acquaint yourselves you know don't uh assume that it's all going to be don't forget about these communities once you've paid your premium now, the question of uh, the activists who I met, as you saw, the, the tea buyers were the most pathetic They had the most orientalized understanding of what's going on in Darjeeling. But I, I do feel, and that's why I've, I've shied away from doing study abroad because I feel so guilty of what uh, these people will be exposed to. And people love going to Darjeeling because it's so beautiful and so on and so forth. But I think... It's, you know, the the young people and how they engage with fair trade in Darjeeling shows us a lot about how this process of fair trade itself has been consumed, not just what it does to people, but how the process itself has been consumed and given more credit than, um, you know, it actually deserves and uh, where people don't acquaint themselves with local histories they don't i mean for instance you know they use work like militant gurkhas and all especially that those things have again come about after this 2017 uh 104 right.
1: day strike uh, I which was i didn't going go to ask you about that. that yeah
0: yeah so actually and- i'm going to uh Oh, sorry. So, in, in a short, in a short uh, way, yeah, that's my response to especially the conscious consumer and the activists. Is just, it's just so unfortunate that it doesn't take too much to produce the wrong notion of yeah.
1: I mean, speaking of you know local history and your exhortation for consumers to go ahead and do some research on what they actually eat and drink. I was wondering if there was, in fact, any explicit articulation between the tea industry and last year's political shutdown around, you know, the ethnic uh, sort of subnational movement,
0: uh, Gurkha movie. identity. Right, right. Yeah, well, it was the first time that plantations were completely shut for so many days. It really affected the trade. But, you know, it also interestingly uh, gave rise to a lot of, uh, what should I say, these negative stereotypes about uh, plantation people. Uh, because uh, the exactly, that you were just exactly. mentioning so you know that the gurkhas occupy such a central presence in 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 this sort of militarized uh imagination you know of the british first of all but you know the gurkha soldiers are also very popular in un peacekeeping forces and etc so there is a there is you know and that's part of also anyway i'll talk about
1: my next project later but In terms of thinking through, it not only did... just a quick point, uh, Debarati, for our listeners who are perhaps not that familiar with Darjeeling's ethnic landscape. Will you explain a little bit about who the Gurkha is? And- oh, oh, yeah, sure, sure. So, and what they
0: have been up to. Okay, so, you know, Gurkhas is another term that is generically used for Indian Nepalese. And uh, the Gurkhas in Darjeeling have been fighting for the last 100 years in various. Uh, intensity uh, to get a different and separate state for them within the Indian nation. And this should not be compared with the separatist movements among India's northeastern states. People do that all the time. And this, is, this has been very detrimental for the Gorkhalan movement as such. Uh, so they, the biggest, uh, the most violent phase before the 104-day strike in the summer of 2017 was in the 80s, the first Gorkhalan movement. The second was in 20, uh, started in 2008. Uh, 7 went on till 11 to the s- establishment of the Gorkha Territorial Administration, a decentralized hill, hill Council type organization like Ladakh in Kashmir, if you could think about parallels. And uh, the most recent strike was in 2017 to get a separate state. And, you know, there, of course, the leadership of the Gorkha liberation struggle now has it Luckily, what social media has done now is really splintered this political landscape. So, you know, there are different political parties. And so this is, in a nutshell they are still fighting for their separate state. And in my book, I show how this particular sort of ethnic turn in local labor politics also coincided with the advent of fair trade in darjeeling in the mid-90s after the success of the First Gorkhalan Movement to really disquirt the labor question uh, in different ways, right? So this is how also the subnational movement uh, in one way, curtailed labor-related questions in the plantations but on the same, on the same uh, time. For the people in non-plantation areas, it opened up the way for them to own land, right? Because they could pander to the politicians and get patta's out of there. That's what happened, essentially. So uh, the movement has had differential effect even within the local uh, economy, and politics right so I, I that's kind of in
1: a nutshell is you think that's enough i hope so <laughs> yeah thank you so much and you know now that you're on the topic is this uh related to your next project that you're pursuing
0: yes i i am thinking it should become a book the, 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 i mean i collected so much uh, oral history of the subnational movement in my i really had to dissociate my. My fair trade project from this project, and then as soon as I finished this book, this whole hundred and four day strike have started, had started, and um, you know it gave an interesting sort of diagnostic moment or moments to think through what's happening, uh, especially the rise of the right wing political parties in Darjeeling in this in this vacuum, right? Um, And thinking through the history of militarization and what it has done to contemporary Gorkha politics within India, not a theme talked about really in recent books. So I'm really categorically like culling from some of my older interviews and uh, hoping to travel soon to Darjeeling to collect more. And I've actually been, you know, long distance researching, I have some uh, travel restrictions right now, I can't travel to India immediately. But I I hope to pursue it uh, for probably a book length project on which I'm calling subnational enterprise. Uh, Again, looking at women's role in subnationalism over the years. So there are some people I interviewed who are no longer alive, you know, who are part of the first
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And and you saw that some of the older plantation workers refer to these political transformations, you know, they've been very active, militant, whatever you want to call it. I never use that word because it's just so misleading, uh, especially now in this sort of um, political climate so yeah that's something that I'm definitely uh, looking forward to working on for the next couple of years Be- I didn't have to just fell upon my lap something I've been thinking about and I've written about it briefly not in much length uh, but yes I'm planning to make it a full fledged project uh, once I sort of emerged from the halo of having published the first book
1: <laughs> <laughs> well devarti That sounds uh, like a great project. I wanted to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed chatting about this particular book, Everyday Sustainability, Gender Justice and Fair Trade Tea in Darjeeling. And I encourage all our readers to find out more about where their tea is coming from. So thank you so much, Professor Sun, for being here with us on New Books Network, South Asian Studies. My pleasure. Thank you to
0: you for such a nice conversation.
1: Thank you.